Welcome everyone. It's another episode of Brain and Butter. It's Flora here today. And again, we try to translate neurological and cognitive psychology findings to tangible real-life example with our guest. Today's topic is going to surround about the identity of immigrants and internationals, and especially focusing on their gender identities and uh, sexuality. Our guest today is Rahil Rochat, who is an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Amsterdam. And Rahil, you obtained your PhD on sexual self-fashioning among the Iranian Dutch at the Institute of Gender Studies at the Radboud University in Nijmegen. And I read that your current research um, and teaching revolve around the political potential of love from feminist, queer and decolonial perspectives. And we will also talk about your book that you lately released for sexual self-fashioning Iranian Dutch narratives of sexuality and belonging. In this talk, we will mostly focus on um, the Iranian Dutch context, but I will also bring some perspectives about Hungarians because I myself moved to the Netherlands from Hungary five and a half years ago and try to generalize uh, the discussion to immigrants or internationals who move from a more traditional conservative country to a progressive modern new home. So welcome, Rayer. Really, really nice to have you here. Thanks for, thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. So first, I would like to talk about this perspective of internationals or immigrants moving from a traditional conservative country to a modern new home, because from psychology, we see that this can cause a lot of cognitive dissonance. And what I mean with the cognitive dissonance is when your beliefs or views are in conflict with the collective's views and values, and you experience this, that you act in a way that you don't internally agree with. And this can cause, obviously, a lot of stress. What I see in, in the Netherlands is that there are two types of groups of, of people or like immigrants, ones who cope with this stress in a way that they become more traditional in their views, also regarding their sexuality, for example, preferring marriage at, at an early age. And I think, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong in this, this regard, this can be seen in uh, Turkish and uh, Moroccan communities. But there are also um, immigrants who cope with this cognitive dissonance stress with adoption to the whole cultural values, assimilation, and also adapting their own values to the, to the collectives. And I think the Iranian Dutch are closer to this second cluster uh, of uh, people who try to adapt to the host culture's uh, values. But I would ask your expertise, what did you see in your research? How do people cope with this? conflicting values. Yeah, interesting question. What you just described about your own personal uh, experience, but also more generally in, in, in these two ways of uh, responding, reacting to a new situation, culturally, politically, uh, socially, economically, and more, uh, sounds very familiar. This is how a lot of people, specifically Iranian Dutch research participants, would describe their own situation and experiences definitely in the first year that they came to the Netherlands. One thing that I think it's important to mention is that the people I spoke to, all of them 
came to the Netherlands as political refugees, mm-hmm. which changes your motive for how you relate to this new situation as well. So for a lot of Iranian Dutch, where they come from is something that they associate with political problems that they were facing because they were active against the regime and had to flee the country. That is one, I think, important difference. So when we talk about internationals, when people come here for educational reasons or to work or other, uh, other motivations, it's important to make that distinction. And what I try to do in my research, and this is probably, I would say, a more anthropological approach, is to understand and ask questions about what people consider as traditional and what people consider as modern. And this questioning this very framing. So rather than distinguishing people in groups of adapting well to the new situation or not so much, I was interested in individual stories of whatever they would tell me, whether they would present themselves as very modern and uh, having changed fundamentally or not. I was interested in why are they telling me this? What is What does this story do for them? And I soon realized that this is very much also the discourse in the Netherlands when it comes to immigrants, that this is how their position is often talked about and, and, and reflected on. Immigrants tend to be categorized in those terms. We have all kinds of statistical research, for instance, that look into how well integrated people are depending on their participation in the job market, for instance or um, level of education. And of course, when you are living in a new situation where there is this dominant discourse, it's easier to tap into that in order to claim belonging, in order to claim success in a way. And I think for a lot of Iranians having to leave their country, which on the one hand they associated with the problems that they had, but on the other hand, still very much love, because it's their home country and they associated with much more than the political regime. But so th- there was this sort of paradox in, uh, on the one hand, claiming a modern identity and having uh, or, or taking distance from uh, who they were in the past, which was then traditional. So having made this journey from traditional to becoming more modern and more modern. So the longer they li- lived in the Netherlands, the more modern they would become. That's the story that many people would tell. And religion was a very important part in this. So sort of making sure that not just claiming that you don't believe in, in Islam in this case, but also make sure that religion doesn't have an impact on a more implicit role in how you view the world in a way and, and relationships. And, and also in my case, gender and sexuality, very important topics to sort of yeah free themselves from religiosity. And that was for a lot of people an important development, I would say, that they wanted to achieve. Yeah, so for me as an anthropologist, this idea of trying to understand why why people claim a certain position, in this case, in order to claim belonging, was the main issue in that that research project, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, totally. And uh, I think it also resonates with me personally because one reason why I moved from Hungary which has currently a quite problematic and conservative political agenda 
to the Netherlands because I wanted to have this freedom. And religion, in my case, was not a factor in this. But I already felt that when I moved to the Netherlands, which is a very progressive and modern country, if you compare it to Hungary or Iran in that sense, I, I felt this sense of freedom and, and empowerment that I can basically do whatever I want and there is no political agenda that I should follow or that's um, advised or not. But this caused also a sense of responsibility and that uh, enhanced agency as well in me. So I didn't have the guiding norms of this is the way our life should look like, mm -hmm. but you had the freedom and you were the agent of your of your life and action. And I also felt sometimes that it's very intimidating. And because when we talk about Iran, which is a way more conservative, also religion comes into the picture. How does it feel for for Iranian Dutch to move from a very normative lifestyle where there are some like guiding norms that help you go from day to day to the Netherlands where mm -hmm. religion is not part of daily life in, in most cases. And there is way more freedom. Like, how do how do um, what did you see in your research? How do people cope with this excessive freedom that we have here? Yeah, this mostly reminds me of the younger Iranian Dutch people. Well, coming to a country where you don't speak the language, where you don't know the culture, you don't know anything about education system. You go to school, but you have no idea how it works, and it's completely different from from Iran. It means kind of reinventing everything and reinventing yourself. And this is, on the one hand, it can be quite stressful, depending also on, on your the support system that you might have or not. And definitely when you come here as a political refugee, the first years are not easy because you don't have a home. You don't know even if you can stay here or not. So all of that also plays a role. But of course, there is also this sense of this potential of you can remake your life and, and yourself. But it takes time. It's a gradual process in my experience and experiences I, I heard. And these younger people, I mean, I spoke to them after them having lived here for about 15, 20 years. So they came here at a young age. And then I spoke to them when they were in their 20s or 30s. And what they said was this, also this change of, uh, on the one hand, the first instance celebrating the opportunities they, they got the same way also their parents would respond to the new situation even though it was quite hard to uh, learn the language to you know just get a job and and communicate in a meaningful way with other people here despite that they would be very very thankful almost for the opportunity that, that they received but these younger people would also reflect critically on that by saying that this notion of us being oppressed and coming from a traditional society is also a stereotypical way of representing people from Iran. There are many examples right now at this moment of people struggling and living different kinds of life in Iran and I'm sure also in Hungary, despite very oppressive political system. So there's also a lot of agency in Iran and a lot of, it, it's hard, it's much harder so to recognize that, to provide, a, a try to provide a more complex picture of, of life also in, in these countries, in Iran, for instance, was important to them. As well as 
the fact that they saw that this distinction between good immigrants and bad immigrants in the Netherlands, those who integrate and those who don't, is also an oppressive system in itself. It makes it, for instance, very hard for immigrants to find each other. So for a while, Iranians would think, some Iranians would think, yeah, they're better than than Turkish Dutch and then Moroccan Dutch because they're more successful. But I am happy to see that this is changing, that people are also trying to find solidarity among those groups by, for instance, pointing out that there is also racism, even though we have a much more progressive political system in the Netherlands, it doesn't mean that there is everything is perfect, that there are no problems. We are also facing racism, sexism, even in, in this country, even though it's known as a very progressive country. And it's important to see all of that, not to deny that there are differences. And those differences are really important. It's a matter of life and death to a lot of people, Iranians who have to leave. But at the same time, societies are much more complex than this simple categorization of traditional uh, or modern. So I saw that these younger people joining this almost a global movement of pointing out injustices where you see that in relation to um, Black Lives Matter or, or Me Too. Yeah, I think it's a very important point that you make that even in a modern and progressive society like in the Netherlands, these groups can face a lot of bias or stereotypes or racism, basically. And then it does make sense why some groups, why they go back to their identity preservation mode that they want to hang out with their community, they want to preserve their tradition, they want to eat their food, be with their community, because that is their safe space. So if they receive this threat from from the hosting country, then of course they're going to go back to these traditions and maybe even become more traditional. I also heard this, that the Iranian Dutch are considered as a success story mm-hmm. in, in many ways. How do they mingle these two aspects? And also if you touch upon sexuality and gender, preserve this identity that they are Iranian, they have tradition, amazing food, things to celebrate, but also be a successful immigrant in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. Good question again. <laughs> Well, what I saw was that the response to this acknowledgement of, for instance, racism in the Netherlands was not to sort of remove yourself from the Dutch society and only meet and spend time with other Iranians, for instance, or other immigrant groups. The response was becoming even more active in this society, but reclaiming your own identity, not allowing that identity to be simplistic, but reclaiming claiming a more complex, so people would actively engage in cultural activities, for instance, through theater, through music, uh, writing, doing research, some of them academic research, trying to work on that. So trying to change the narrative rather than becoming passive and dissociating themselves from Dutch society. So they want to, they want to change it. They don't want to exclude themselves from it. So it, in fact, it activated them even more but then claiming their own space in a way. With regard to gender and sexuality, we provided them this relationship where they have this critical distance from their own past. So they don't want to go to the, the, the past. They want to renew themselves, but then not according to this dominant discourse that they saw here in the Netherlands of you can be, if you do this, then you're successful. If you don't, then you're not. 
this would give them even more freedom to rethink gender and sexuality in relation to both the Iranian background, but also Dutch society. So to experiment. And what, one uh, example that I can think of from my research was what nowadays has become quite, I wouldn't say normal or popular, but something that we now have all heard of, question monogamy, for instance, to question marriage not question the importance of intimacy and commitment, but then different kinds of intimacies and commitment. It, it became like a, a device for them, this not belonging to either the Iranian culture in the traditional sense, in the classical sense, or accepting the Dutchness as, for instance, their parents would do. It allowed them to question both kind of frameworks and discourses and create new ones. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting also in one of, I think one of your work, I read that there was a man who, I think, experimented with non-monogamous relationships, but then he came to the conclusion that, uh, but correct me here if I'm wrong, that commitment is a sign of maturity at, at mm. some point. I think it's also super nice to see that you have the freedom to maybe explore a little in your sexuality or in your gender identity, but then perhaps come back to where you started in, uh, so to say, and become, again, monogamous or committed to, to one partner, but you had the, the scope to explore your sexuality more. So what is the journey of people that take in, in this scenario? Yeah, very, very different. Uh, so this is one, one example, but there are also completely other examples that I could give. In this case, I wouldn't say that um, he went back to where he started. I think for him, this experience of commitment changed fundamentally. The quality of, of, mm. of that experience changed fundamentally. When you think you're just supposed to have this monogamous relationship and that that's it, that's the norm, it's quite different from choosing to do so and also to work on that commitment because commitment is also hard work. To really try to see your partner and not take them for granted. That's not easy, I think, in general. There is an important change. And this reminds me of what you said in the beginning about how people then might reclaim their, for instance, religiosity as a way to respond to this threat from outside world. It could be racism or discrimination. I think even then, this reclaiming of religion, for, for instance, some of the Iranian Dutch, it was very hard to find them, but some, a few of them, do identify as Muslims and also see themselves as a minority within a minority. So they feel like they have to defend themselves, not only against Dutch society more generally, but also other Iranian Dutch, because how can you be religious if you fled the country for religion-related reasons? So they had to also refine their religiosity. It's a new kind of Islam for them. It's not the same as, as in the past. So they also have to do this renewal so I think that's that's important to not to assume that it's simply going going back. Uh, definitely a different quality of uh, yeah. of experience. Yeah, for sure. And also I think it's it's good to mention that there are still religious Iranian Dutch because it's not that you move and then everything that mm -hmm. happened in Iran is like in the past, but like you can reclaim, as you mm -hmm. said, your really really artistry, and that's also part of your identity, and it's. It doesn't have to be associated with the political problems in your home country. So I think that's a really good point to mention. I wanted to ask you if you saw any gender differences in the way of 
people adapting to this freedom in sexuality, for example, in the Iranian Dutch, because there are no strict gender roles in the Netherlands, but in, in Muslim countries there are quite some gender roles. So I wonder if there were any significant differences between groups. Gender played a crucial role. A lot of Iranian Dutch women I spoke with very much celebrated the opportunities they got here, but they also had to sort of fight against, uh, in, some, in, in a lot of cases, it, it led to divorce, simply. And we know that the statistics, uh, divorce statistics are quite high uh, among Iranians living in Western countries. And it seemed to me that uh, for men, there was more to lose through divorce than for women. So women saw these opportunities of, you know, the consequences of divorce were far less harsh than in Iran. For instance, they wouldn't just simply lose their children, custody of their children, which happens in Iran legally. That's a huge difference. But also the security, the financial security after you separate is completely different if you compare the situation here to Iran. So they saw a future for themselves after divorce, which is very hard to imagine if you live in Iran. And so making that decision is much harder there than here. Of course, it very much depends also on your resources, your financial resources. And you can... But I think it was also a cultural matter. For men, it was harder to learn the language even. If you looked at who uh, would arrange stuff, having contact with uh, the neighbors or all kinds of organizations and who would take initiative and would do those kind of things, it was mostly women, interestingly, because they experienced this as a, as more pace in a way to become active than they were in Iran. And it's, it's um, yeah, that, that's a very interesting question. I have not really looked into this in detail, that this, this exact difference, but I know that in the stories they would tell that men were also uh, complaining about women, Iranian women not being interested in them because Iranian women would, if they had the choice, choose a partner from another background. For Iranian men, it was much harder to date Iranian Dutch women. It's also a matter of numbers because I think probably there are more young Iranian men than women in, in the Netherlands. And I also wonder, because my research ended in 2014, so I wonder if things have changed a little bit since then, because there's now a new generation also who grew up here and maybe that gender dynamic has changed. But intuitively, I could imagine that Iranian Dutch women have this exposure of like freedom and possibilities and everything. But for men, it's a little bit the opposite because they have in that sense less say in many situations because they have the freedom of themselves, but they don't really have the say in the woman's and the partner's life anymore. So I think that in a way a reduction of power, if I, mm-hmm. if I may say that. And uh, and for women, I think it's a increase, like a huge increase in agency and power and and freedom. So if we go back to the topic of or we start the topic of belonging and the sense of belonging, I think it might be interesting to distinguish like the international sphere to the Dutch-Iranian uh, and immigrant sphere, because I often see in internationals that in another country they create this third layer 
of not being totally integrated to the recipient country, but also they are not perfect representative of their own country, so to say. And they create this third layer of internationals and they mingle in, in that uh, area. And I also experience it in myself because I am part of academia and now I work here. I studied here and um, I also, after five and a half years, shame on me, but I don't speak the language or not really well. And I also seek out the company and the events and traditions and everything of internationals and not necessarily a Hungarian community and not necessarily a Dutch community. Mm -hmm. So I mingle in this in-between sphere, but um, I wonder how it is for Dutch Iranians and, and what you've seen about this in your research. Yeah, certainly a group of uh, younger, progressive Iranians. This definitely reminds me of them. And very concretely, cities like Amsterdam, I think, perhaps also Rotterdam, and uh, the bigger cities, the more international, multicultural cities uh, of the Netherlands, where you see that. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with Mizrab, this cultural center in Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. Funny enough, but yesterday I was uh, their storytelling night. So it's, yes. Uh, yeah. So now you know what talking about the the main founder of Mezrab is an Iranian Dutch friend of mine, and this is exactly what I the kind of sphere that I associate with that group of younger progressive Iranian Dutch who also took part in my in my research, where they find this different kind of specific kind of language, obviously English, but then all kinds of references to. I don't know, specific websites or journals or things that they know and they read. And so this creates a kind of a community without a lot of time even seeing each other, which is very international. And But also spaces such as Mezrab, where actually people from all kinds of countries meet. Yeah, Mezrab is, I think, a very great example if you look at how it has developed in the past years attracted more and more people. I went to Mezrab and it was a different place and much smaller. And now everyone everyone knows Mesra, but that's interesting to see. Yeah, and I think for many internationals, it is it creates a sense of belonging because yes. you meet people who understand your journey, your struggles, your your situation at the moment. Because I think it's it's difficult different when you go back to your own country and you talk with your friends. They don't necessarily understand the life of an international or an immigrant. And same with the host country, because their people might not see the whole contrast between your own traditional identity and, and the new modern. So I think the international layer creates this sense of belonging that Mezrab is also so good at, but because they are just sharing all the experiences and create a platform to to share these diverse experiences that everyone can kind of relate to, because we more or less go through the same process in this. Paradoxically enough, it's a matter of belonging. That's why people are attracted, I think, to space like Mizra. But I think there is also a sense of non-belonging at the same time, this non-belonging to any specific. So the moment you want to specify where it is that you belong to, it becomes hard. And this is a paradox in the sense that it's, I wouldn't say it's a sad story, like uh, not having a real home anymore. But in a way, it is like that while at the same time creating possibilities of making home every time again, uh, maybe uh, temporarily, but nevertheless meaningful in a meaningful way. So I think this is exactly what people told me. Like, yeah, I don't feel like 
I quite belong to any kind of culture, but I also don't think this is a bad thing. <laughs> uh, not completely. There's this movie at the moment, Past Lives. I don't know if you uh, saw the post there, maybe. Yeah. I saw that movie and there is a line, this Korean-American girl is saying that when she meets other Koreans in the U.S., she suddenly feels Korean, but also not Korean at all. <laughs> and, and this is super interesting. I recognize that completely also myself. Like there is something in you that um, makes this connection possible. There is, you, you know, there are some cultural associations, something you understand, some kind of jokes and language purely yeah language purely but it's also even non-verbal like you you know how to move around those people but at the same time you're also standing on a distance looking at what's happening as if as if you're also not completely there you can do it you can take part but it's also you, you also exist outside of it at the same time and this is i think yeah very interesting experience of living in another country than where you were born for a longer period. Yeah, totally. And um, I would, as one of the last questions, ask you, were there kind of strategies or coping styles that helped these Iranian Dutch to have this peace of mind and the sense of settlement when they moved to the Netherlands that you saw in your research that helped them to accept this kind of in-between lifestyle? Yeah, what I'm now thinking of is a bit older generations, let's say the parents of the people we were just talking about. So on the one hand, they expected themselves to take distance from their cultural background, for instance, specifically in relation to gender and sexuality. So they expected themselves to be okay with the fact that their daughters are dating, dating men. But at the same time, because that was also a huge, diff, uh, huge change, they wanted to make it manageable by setting some criteria. So they would ask their daughters whether they're really serious about this relationship. So it's okay to date before you're married. In fact, it's a good thing because you get to know other people. And then when you get married, you make a good decision and it will lead to a stable relationship because that's still the ideal. But now that you're dating, you can't just go around and meet people and have these casual relationships. It's important to be very rational in how you approach these relationships and make wise choices. So they would emphasize rationality and like reflect on your choice and don't just meet people. And that was really interesting because rationality is a very modern term. It has a modern connotation, right? But they would use it as a way to sort of limit, you know, the, the freedom of their children without becoming un unmodern. So <laughs> this was a really interesting strategy, I think, claiming becoming modern, but at the same time limiting this move in a way, and the freedom in this case was also their children. I think it's, it's really important because what we talked about at the beginning, the excessive freedom that you have comes with responsibilities. So I think, or it seems like it's a really good coping mechanism in a way to acknowledge your, your freedom. Like you see that you have all these options and all these possibilities, but you need to be mindful about that. You need to see the consequences and you need to be more responsible. So... I think it's a really good discussion to have to reflect on how these internationals or immigrants have this enhanced responsibility because they are aware how many options they have, but they also know that the consequences and, and what it will bring. So I see it many times that it just raises 
in them so much more awareness and the responsibility taking, which is which is great to see because they really are the agents of their of their lives and they can handle this freedom really well. Yes. Uh, in this case, this dynamic between parents and children is also very interesting because, of course, children don't always do what their parents want or uh, parents would think that their children are, are doing it like this and are very rational and think about their choices. But that doesn't exactly mean that children are actually doing that. And this dynamic, I mean, it's it's not just in an immigrant context, but so there is also a generational difference I wanted to mention for the, the children would see them, their parents struggling with this also like I, I see my parents wanting to give me a lot of freedom and space but I also see that they're they're finding it hard to do yeah and I think it's it's a constant struggle because it's a very different setting from many perspectives they need to adjust but they also need to have their peace of mind yes. so I think it's always an interesting balance but I think it's a great coping mechanism is mm-hmm. the family itself can talk about this yes. just have like an open conversation okay i would like to you to do this but i also want to give freedom for you so it's not like rules after rules and just mm-hmm. dogmas because without explanation but an open conversation like this is why i feel this way and this yes. is why this would make me happy so i think uh, that's definitely something that develops a need to develop when, yes. when you're in this uh, situation. Exactly. Almost out of necessity, you have to have that open conversation with each other, which is uh, both hard and a good thing. Well, thank you so much for the conversation. I really, really enjoyed it. I think we learned a lot of good perspectives and uh, I think this conversation needs to be heard and, and have because it raises awareness about a lot of aspects. Ah, thank you very much. Thank you for the questions. Thank you.